All right. Welcome to the Opportunity Starts at Home podcast, where we talk about opportunity in America today and how housing fundamentally shapes that opportunity. This is your host, Mike Kaprowski. I'm the National Director of the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign, and we're glad that you tuned in. We are a national campaign that advocates for stronger federal policies that expand affordable housing for the lowest income people. But what makes us different is that we're bringing together new voices from other sectors to help us do it. Sectors like health, education, civil rights, anti-poverty, anti-hunger, faith-based, and more. These sectors are increasingly realizing that they can't fully achieve their own goals and priorities if the people they serve lack access to safe, decent, affordable housing. So we're building a multi-sector coalition and we're broadening the housing movement. This podcast really explores the connections between housing and all of these other sectors. Housing policy is school policy, health policy, economic policy, civil rights policy, criminal justice policy, and more. Few things shape our opportunity more than housing. We have lots of evidence about it, yet housing is often overlooked by our leaders and our policymakers. But being able to afford a decent home is a prerequisite for opportunity in America. The promises that our elected leaders make every election cycle, better health, better economic opportunity, better education, those things can only be fulfilled if people have access to good affordable homes in which to live. So we talk to research experts, we talk to leading advocates from different sectors, and we talk to elected officials. I hope you enjoy and hope you learn something too. All right, hello and welcome to today's episode with Dr. Myra Jones-Taylor, Chief Policy Officer at Zero to Three. Zero to Three is a leading national advocacy organization working to ensure that all babies and toddlers have a strong start in life. And Zero to Three, I should say, participates on the campaign's roundtable and has done so since pretty much the very start of the campaign. As the Chief Policy Officer at Zero to Three, Myra leads the development and implementation of the organization's policy agenda, priorities, and strategies, uh, and she serves as the principal spokesperson and point of contact for the organization on public policy matters with the media, with policymakers, funders, and with partner organizations. And prior to this role, Myra served as the founding commissioner of the Connecticut Office of Early Childhood. This uh, cabinet-level state agency was responsible for early intervention programs, uh, home visitation, early care and education, and, and child care licensing programs across the state, uh, serving about 50,000 kids each year. She received her doctorate in American Studies and Anthropology from Yale, and she lives in D.C. with her husband and two kids. So, Myra, it's a great pleasure uh, to have you here today on the podcast. Thanks. It's great to be with you. Really happy to be here. Yeah, yeah, this is great. Um, so let's let's just start with you telling the audience a little bit about yourself. Um, you know, what's what's not in the official bio that I read? What gets you up in the morning to do this work? You know, I think it's the only way I can get up in the morning these days <laughs> is to know that I have a purpose, that I get to work with an incredible team of people who are um, dedicated and steadfast in our vision to make sure that children do not suffer the way they they can they are suffering right now in the midst of this pandemic um so it's really you know i i come from um at a very loving family and um we were there are times when we were in poverty there are times when we were just hovering above the poverty line or in the working class uh and i know Mm -hmm. that i have uh, really benefited from good policy and um and so it's it's really my my way of giving back to make sure that 
policies that kept my family intact are, are around for other families. Yeah, I got to say that's the single best answer I've ever heard on that question, which is it's the only it's the only way I can get up uh, during these times. Well, well said. Um, uh. So, yeah, tell us about uh, tell us about zero to three, just as an organization, and kind of the the range of things that you all do, from advocacy to tools for parents, the different initiatives, and then also what what zero to three has been focusing on during the COVID pandemic. Yeah, so Zero to Three, we've been around for over 40 years, and we work with parents, policymakers, and professionals to ensure all babies have what they need to thrive. And we Mm -hmm. frame that around three things, really, um, good health, strong families, and positive early learning experiences. And we, within policy, the Policy Center at Zero to Three, my team is working to drive change for infants, toddlers, and their families at many levels of government. So the federal level, state level, and local levels. And we have Mm -hmm. a special emphasis on overburdened and under-resourced children. Um, So, yeah, we've, you know, this is, this is what we do. And and right now, obviously, as every family around the nation is grappling with COVID-19 and this economic crisis that came as a part of it, um, we, we are working to advocate for policies that we know will help families recover through this unprecedented time. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, um, you know, we work with federal lawmakers across our policy framework on issues that are important to babies. So uh, we provide technical assistance to states. We uh, we're, we have uh, infant and early child mental health work that we do. There's, there's a lot that, that happens um, at zero to three. And, you know, right now, obviously, everything is focused on what's happening in the middle of this pandemic. Yeah, same here. It's, it's required us all to, to pivot really strongly to the current crisis. Um, and those three domains that you mentioned, we're going to, we're going to dig into those later in the podcast of, of good health and strong families and, and positive early learning. So we're going to, we're going to flesh more of that out as, as we go. Um, but that was a great, great introduction around what, what your organization does. And, and before we dive into kind of the, the specific challenges, and obviously we'll spend a lot of time talking about housing because that's the theme of the, the podcast, but um, I just wanted to sort of lay, lay the groundwork here um, and talk about what the research tells us about the the importance of the early years of life there's definitely just mountains of of research showing that you know the first days of life the first months of life the first years of life are are deeply shaping our trajectories uh for our entire lives and you know babies and toddlers they're they're not just you know laying there and crying and sleeping and needing a diaper change though they definitely need that right there's there's a lot of foundational stuff going on in their little brains and their little bodies that uh, from day one that, that carry with them throughout their life. So kind of talk about what we know about, you know, brain development and, and some of the research around the early years. First, I have to say, it's just so great to hear you say that because there was a time not too long ago where people would really struggle to make those points that you just made. So it's, it, I was um, sitting here cheering as you were saying that. So I'm, I'm glad. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for that framing. But, you know, this, this is this is something that science has has proven for very long, but it's just finally really taking hold in the public mm-hmm. um, sphere and certainly among policymakers. But, you know, so we know that building brains is very similar to building a house. You need to start with a strong foundation. And the first three years of life represent the most rapid phase of brain development uh, in your lifetime. And mm-hmm. it's, it's during the first 36 months that the foundation is being laid for how children understand and relate to the world around them. Um, You know, if you were to boil all the science down to one simple statement, it's that 
how and how well we think, learn, control our emotions, and relate to others the rest of our lives is really heavily dependent on the nature of the experiences and connections we have when we're babies um, with mm-hmm. the important adults in our lives. And those human connections shape those brain connections. They are the very, very foundation behind the brain connections that will lead to later life, you know, that, that set up mm-hmm. our brain architecture. Um, yeah. architecture. Um, and, you know, what you have to think about really is that the brain architecture in young children is molded by the quality of their earliest relationships and experiences, which mm-hmm. are affected by their surroundings. And so if you think about surroundings that are, you know, that children are living in, you have to think, is it a safe, encouraging setting where a child is surrounded by loving adults um, and has every opportunity to become a happy child and a curious learner? Or is it one of scarcity? You may have loving adults, but those loving adults are um, just trying to provide the basic needs. And that is putting, you know, that focus um, kids are aware of that. They are aware when families are are in stress, uh, and mm-hmm. and it puts the developing brain on high alert. And what it does is, um, when that brain is on high alert, it's unable to do all the the to tend to the full range of brain development that we know is necessary for for later success in life. Um, and you know, I would say this: that infants and toddlers are acutely sensitive to challenges and changes in their environments, which is why it's so important mm-hmm. right now. If you think about the midst of this pand- pandemic. Um, and this is why a safe and stable home is such a critical part of the puzzle. Um, and so, you know, that's why we are such strong advocates and, and so proud to be part of um, Opportunity Starts at Home in this work. Yeah, likewise. I mean, I, I think the way that I kind of think about it is everything is just amplified in these years, or positive experiences and, and negative experiences, too, that any sort of negative health experience or a negative family experience or a negative learning experience, it... I mean, and they've, they've done this research of longitudinally what happens and, and you know, people that, uh, or babies and toddlers that, that have these experiences are susceptible to long-term developmental and health problems that, that carry with them through life. And there's there's all sorts of, like, scientific stuff. Like, I, I think I read in, in one of your reports that, you know, if you, if you break it down to, like, the raw science, there's there's, like, a million neural connections that are happening per second at this age. And that's the, like the fastest rate. I mean, there's all sorts of like brain science here too, but, but the, the point for, for policymakers and for advocates is that there, there's no other time uh, where you see such rapid brain development as, as these years. And that's why it's so critical, um, critical to focus on these years. Um, so, I mean, I think, you know, everybody listening to this podcast would, would, and, and should agree that, um, babies and toddlers should have uh, equitable opportunities to thrive, um, but the reality is that they don't. Um, and we know that you know talent is is equitably distributed. Whether you're looking at race or class or gender, talent is is distributed uh, pretty equally. But there are significant disparities, um, particularly when we talk about um, children of color. Um, and, and these disparities are rooted in, in poverty and discrimination. And this has become even more clear. If, I mean, it was already clear. It's become even more uh, evident uh, during the, the pandemic. Um, so what's happening here? Talk to us about the, the disparities that we see in, in outcomes. You know, you're, you are absolutely right. Every baby is born with unlimited potential. And, yeah. uh, you know, what we do as a society to tap into that potential um, really determines where we land as a society, mm-hmm. you know. And so um, right now we are 
we're really it's we're really missing out on a lot of untapped potential. Um, yeah. We're actually thwarting it. So, you know, it, it's critical that every baby have the same opportunities to thrive. Um, but as you said, significant disparities exist in opportunities, and then the outcomes that are tied to those opportunities. And so, the zero to three, we're really proud of our State of Babies Yearbook, which tells us that, and this is a you know a look at how babies are faring across the country in all 50 states and the district. Um, and several mm-hmm. indicators, but this tells us that more than half of America's babies are children of color, reflecting yeah. a huge shift in demographics that mm-hmm. began with the babies born um, in 2011, the first time that more than half of births were children of color. And yeah. because of um, historical and structural inequalities, however, children of color are more likely to be poor, um, or more likely mm-hmm. to be born too soon or too small, and yeah. to live in environments that challenge their family's security. And they and their families also face challenges accessing the supports that could boost them to a level playing field, such as, you know, comprehensive prenatal care and quality early learning experiences, housing, right? Um, But research consistently finds that the negative effects of poverty and racial discrimination on young children link to differences in access to these critical resources and services. And so these effects appear really early. We know that even at age two, children in the lowest socioeconomic socioeconomic group already lag behind their peers on measures of language processing mm-hmm. um, and cognitive abilities. And yep. then we, if you think about discriminatory policies and individual acts of racism throughout our nation's history, they've limited or blocked completely opportunities for black uh, children and mm-hmm. families, indigenous families, Latinx families, and the impacts of historical policy decisions and the chronic stress associated with racism um, persist today. Um, yeah. Yeah, and we, if we think in large part because of historical and current racism, black families um, are disproportionately more likely to experience a number of risks associated with poverty. Uh, they are more likely to live in poor quality and, and unstable housing, uh, to be ex- exposed to environmental toxicants, mm-hmm. and to experience interpersonal and neighborhood violence and inadequate resources. So we know we are just stacking um, yeah. the the burdens and the obstacles in front of in front of black families and all of yeah. this is becoming clear when you looking we're looking at the disproportionate uh, impact of COVID right we've seen incredible reports about this staggering reports about the disproportionate um, negative effects of of COVID on families and this affects young children there's no way around it yeah yeah no matter what what measure you're talking about in this country, whether it's education, whether it's housing, whether it's early childhood development or criminal justice. I mean, the research is very consistent that the, the negative effects uh, of, of poverty are disproportionately felt by kids of color. And there's, there's, there's no way around it, as you said. Um, so the, the, uh, the good news, um, early experiences, uh, early interventions, they matter. Um, and and when you know, as you said, when when babies and toddlers don't have what they need uh, to thrive, their development can suffer. There's lifelong consequences. But uh, as you say in in the report, and we'll talk more about the the zero to three um, state of babies yearbook. This is the report that I refer to. Um, is that the the same uh, rapid brain development that that makes babies and toddlers so vulnerable to these adversities? also offers a window of opportunity. In other words, we can intervene, we know which interventions are most effective, and it's easier and cheaper uh, to intervene early than it is to rely on 
uh, remedial programs uh, later on. Um, so help us think through this sort of the window of opportunity. We know how to fix this, right? Yeah, that's the good news. I mean, yeah. you know, that that is the thing that I really want to hit home for people is that while all of these negative effects could have lifelong consequences, we know that if we just address them, if we eliminate them, if we put up the supports that we need, we we're getting back to that, you know, really tapping into the full potential of children. Yep. Um, yep. And this is because the brain is most adaptable to a wide range of environments and interactions. And so um, they can be wired with strong connections, with strong support, or we can be rewired in response to significant changes. So even if a child is facing adversity, if we swoop in and do the work of community, do the work of effective policies, we can change course for children, um, especially in those first, you know, these first few years of life. Um, and this, this is why, again, you know, we, know, we need to make sure that families have these um, strong connections, um, that they are able to set their children up for success. And we know policies like paid family and medical leave and programs mm -hmm. like Early Head Start, um, parenting support, something like Head St uh, Healthy Steps, which is something Zero to Three has been working on for years to transform pediatric care to really tap into to this brain science that we've been talking about. All of these, can these things together can support these relationships and promote strong cognitive development and language skills. Um, and all the other things that set children up for, you know, for success. And I, I want to focus on social and emotional development um, because mm -hmm. that is so critical. That yeah. is really the foundation um, for, you know, the cognitive things that happen later when, you know, our kids are in school and all of that. That really strong social, emotional, um, mental health of young children is, is critical to that. Um, and we know that, unfortunately, infants and toddlers can experience mental health problems. But mm -hmm. making sure that child-serving settings like child care, pediatric care, that they have um, specialized support to address those concerns when they do arise. And we also need to make sure that we have skilled providers who can accurately screen for, diagnose, and treat mental health disorders when they do present um, before they affect other areas, areas of development. Yeah. And we know that Medicaid is really, really important in this, and that's something I'll talk about later, but Medicaid um, expansion is critical in, in making sure that we are, we're, setting these, we're setting children up on the, right, on the right path and really tapping into that science that you talked about. Yeah. And uh, talk a little bit about sort of the, the return on investment that, that we know. And I know that there's all sorts of different data points and, and all that. But I mean, in terms of if, if we invest now, um, what's the what's the bang for the buck? I mean, we what do we know about about this, uh, about the the sort of the the fiscal benefits, if you will, of, of intervening early and investing early? So, you know, the statistics, they, they vary. So you'll see one for $1 um, spent is $13 saved. Mm -hmm. or, you know, they yeah. do vary a yeah. little bit. But it, the, yeah. the news is it is a huge, huge, hugely important um, investment to invest early because of what we just talked about, because of the brain mm -hmm. development. It's we have that window of opportunity when the brain is so plastic. We talked about the plasticity of the brain. Basically, mm. it can be affected one way or the other. Um, and if you... If you prevent, if you provide those resources up front, you will uh, either lessen the need for them later in life, or actually get rid of the need for them um, right. later in life. So early intervention. So if, if we address a child has a developmental delay, they have a speech delay, they have a gross motor delay, they're not walking, uh, and you know at the time when developmentally they should, we mm -hmm. can bring in skilled clinicians 
skilled uh, interventionists who can help um, correct for those, and the brain will rewire itself um, mm-hmm. so that that happens. And but you know, stable housing, good nutrition, all of those things are really, really important. And a lot of that research you just talked about. It focuses more on early learning programs, but yeah. you know, I think the the real, the bigger story is all those other things that we know young children need to thrive. Good, you know, strong um, access to childcare. I'm sorry, access to healthcare, mm-hmm. um, good food, you know, stable housing. All of those things allow their parents and themselves to do the work of development, as opposed to just basically trying to step up to, to survive. Yeah. Yeah. I was, as you were talking, I was thinking back to my time in, in Dallas when I was in the Dallas school system. And this is like mm, 2014, I think. And, and the district was really trying to ramp up its, its early childhood programming. And we were going out to the voters and asking for more money through, through bond programs. And there were sort of the two arguments that I think won the day. We, we were able to be successful. And, and I think two arguments really, really won the day. One was that this is a unique moment in time that, that kids are only this age once and you got sort of one shot to, um, to, to intervene at, at, at this particular age. And there's no other time in life where the, their brains are developing as significantly or the, the ability, the, the plasticity, the rewiring, all those sorts of arguments. But also there was, we, we made a, a sort of the, the fiscally conservative argument that, yeah. that um, if we miss this window, it's going to cost us a lot more money over the long haul in terms of remediation programs and the remediation programs that we were doing as a district in middle school and high school uh, were less effective the longer you you waited. So it was sort of one of those things where we tried to make the case that it, it, the moral and the economic case were aligned here. And when you can when you can do that, if uh, you know, it, it becomes more politically possible. And I think that's that's kind of what what we relied a lot on in, in Dallas. Um, is to, is to marry the, the moral and the economic case together. Um, so I want to I circle back to, to COVID um, because, you know, as you said earlier, it's amplified all of this. So I know that you could probably talk for, for days on end about this question, but just, I mean, what, what are your biggest worries right now about the, the short-term impacts of COVID and the, the long-term impacts of COVID on, on babies and toddlers? Um, and then sort of what, what solutions are you looking to uh, right now? You know, you just hit on it, that this is this critical moment in development of young children. You know, you're only one once. Your brain is only forming one million yep. new neural connections every second, you know, for a very small window of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that this is happening, that, you know, there are 12 million infants and toddlers in this country right now who are having this critical time in their development in the midst of a pandemic is is devastating to think about, especially when you think about what the numbers are telling us, that so many of the statistics that were already bad, that were already Mm -hmm. showing we weren't doing right by our babies and our families, have have gotten dramatically worse, Mm -hmm. um, especially in black and indigenous communities. I mean, it's it's just... um, it, you know, I, if I dwell on it too much right now, I will just get choked up. So, yeah. um, which is why this work is so important so I can have purpose. Um, but, you know, the, the experience of the pandemic has laid bare what families and human services organizations um, that support them have known for years and that our systems for supporting the health and well-being of families 
um, especially with those those with young children, are threadbare um, to practically non-existent. Mm-hmm. You know, they have yep. we have not been doing right by families for so long, and um, it, this is just making it clear what happens in the midst of a crisis, um, and we don't have those those structures in place. Just what uh, you know, we talk about the safety net being you know tattered already. I mean, it has just been ripped to shreds, and so yep. we're seeing the effects of that right now. Um, and we know that through surveys like the Census Household Pulse Survey and mm-hmm. the Rapid EC Survey, which is something that's out of the University of Oregon, I, I'm on the National Advisory for, um, they do a weekly survey of families to sh- in the middle of COVID. And it's, it's striking right. um, to see that families are experiencing extreme stress and pressure yeah. brought, brought on by the paired pandemics of ec- the economic downturn. Um, and, and COVID. Um, yeah. And so, you know, families are just struggling to meet their basic needs. And that has a huge effect on their social emotional well being. And we know that when your social emotional well being is not intact, it's hard to do anything. I mean, right, I'm sitting here talking to you um, with all the privileges that I have. And I know my family, my children are really struggling through this. I have two teenage yeah. children. And I'm thinking about. I, and I worry about them daily. And then I think about families that I have met through my career who don't have these resources, um, who have been told that they're less than their entire lives, and they are trying to manage all of this with in this, you know, tattered, threadbare system. And it's, um, you know, like I said to you earlier, it's on us to, to change this. Um, yeah. And so, you know, critical to our nation's stability to cover is is making sure that we have all these things in place. Um, economic security has to be a top priority. And, and this is something I wanted to get to a, a, mm-hmm. as you were talking earlier. You know, we um, we talk about so much of the, the work that we've done in the early childhood community, which is where I've spent most of my career, has been focused on buffering the impacts of poverty, right? right. So you're in poverty, but let's lessen it a little yep. bit. Let's make yep. sure you have quality child care. Let's make sure you have... Um, early head start and mm-hmm. hope that that will no not hope we know the research is clear that that will make a difference but it's time for us and this is why we joined opportunity starts at home to really shift that and to think shift our focus to actually addressing the root causes of poverty and mm-hmm. for so long the early childhood field is really focused on you know making sure children who are eligible for head start you have to be it's a means tested program right you have to be poor um, to be eligible for head start we yeah. we focus on making sure those children who are eligible have access to it, but we need to start and kind of refocus and actually address poverty so that we have fewer numbers of children who are yeah. eligible, who are poor enough to be eligible in the first place. Yeah. Um, so, and COVID is just going to make that job so much harder if we don't completely rethink the way we do our work. Yeah. Amen. So that, that's actually a really good setup for the, the next set of questions, which was to, to dive into um, the, the report that you all publish annually. It's called the State of Babies Yearbook. It's a really great report. I would urge everybody to, uh, to check it out, and we'll, we'll talk at the end about where they can go to, to find that. Um, but you, you categorize all this research into three domains. You alluded to it earlier, and the three domains are good health, uh, positive le- uh, early learning experiences, and strong families. And that these are essentially the three areas that are needed to help you know babies reach their full potential. And then you look at all fifty states and DC, uh, and you essentially give them um, you know a score based on based on how they're doing. And so I just wanted to kind of go one by one um, and, and talk about. Um, 
these three domains because I think it, it, it gets at the, the root of what of what you were talking about earlier. So if we could, let, let's kind of start with the, the health um, domain. Uh, and and the, you look at several things within the, the health domain. So there's um, healthcare access, um, right? Things like um, Medicaid eligibility, uh, whether the state adopted Medicaid expansion, percent of babies that are uninsured. You look at things like uh, food security, nutrition, um, uh, prenatal care, maternal health type indicators, um, sort of uh, child physical health indicators. Um, so, you know, the percent of babies that have had a, a preventative doctor's visit, uh, low birth weights, infant mortality, vaccines, um, and then also uh, uh, mental health as well. In addition to physical health, you look at mental health. Um, like, does the state Medicaid plan cover uh, social-emotional screening for kids and, and other mental health services? So kind of t- talk to us about the, the importance of the, the health domain uh, as a whole and why this domain is so critical. Yeah, it's... Um you know, we know that um, good physical and mental health provide the foundation for babies to develop physically, cognitively, emotionally, and socially. You know, socially, you can't have a child who's um, going to be learning how to read a couple years down the road if they are hungry. It's a lot right. harder on them for things we've already talked about. Uh, and indicators in this domain cover topics that you just, you know, you just said the healthcare access, affordability, um, food insecurity, and all those things. But we know that. Um, they have to have these fundamental parts of, develop, of um, mm-hmm. you know, well-being to, to make sure that they are set up for success in, in, their, in these first vital years of develop, development. Um, and one indicator in the 2020 yearbook that is of particular concern, especially in a pandemic, is that one in six babies um, lived in households experiencing food insecurity before COVID-19. Before COVID, yeah. Before, right? And so we've seen data that's coming out from researchers that suggest that this percentage has more than doubled in the last six months. Um, mm, well, you know, just, just think about that, right? And then yeah. if you think about health as the area where providing the greatest ability to examine the experiences of, um, so that the health data that we have that we use for this, this report um, allows us to dig down and get into sub subgroup populations. So the first year we mm-hmm. released this, we had kind of an overview, but the next year, this 2020, we were able to disaggregate by race and ethnicity, um, by income and by urbanicity, if they lived in an rural, urban area or r- rural area. We weren't able to do it for all of our indicators because data doesn't exist, but health was one where there's really good data that is disaggregated. Um, and we're able to see that, you know, so overall, the country's doing pretty well when it comes to things like routine medical visits. Um, mm-hmm. Nine out of 10 babies in this country get their well child visits on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Um, but then if you, de- you know, you dive down deeper, you disaggregate by race or, right. or income, we see a much different story. So we know mm-hmm. that black and Latinx babies are much like, less likely than white babies to get their preventative care. And you think about that, again, in the context of COVID, where we know so many families are reporting that they are foregoing or delaying well visits, they're foregoing or delaying vaccines. Um, this yep. is really, really concerning to us, especially when we think about how the disproportionate rates of um, the effects of COVID on these same communities. So this is something we're, we're really concerned about and tracking quite a bit. I guess the other one to talk about is just disparities in maternal and infant mortality. Um, okay. So, you know, nationally, the maternal mortality rate for black women um, is more than three times higher than that for white women. And 
incidence of preterm births is more than one and a half times higher among black women than white women. So it's 14% compared to 9%. Mm. And then, of course, infant mortality. We've seen this. You know, there's been great, great advocacy on this um, around all of these. But infant mortality, which is talked about a little bit less, is, is more than twice as high for black babies than for white babies. And so this is something where we really want to, um, you know, obviously prevent, but figure out if this is getting worse or getting um, worsening in the midst of the of the pandemic. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you're walking us through. The, these numbers are just they're, you know, they're they're shocking, and yeah. and they're um, and and so again, I'd urge everybody listening to this to really check out the report itself. Uh, the the reports are. Um, the the state of babies yearbook is it's really staggering and the, and the statistics that you all have in there are are really compelling and, and shows just how fall uh, how far short we are falling um, for kids for babies and toddlers right um, it's so so let's go to the next um, let's go to the next bucket or the next domain as you call it which is um, positive early learning experiences and here you look at things like um, uh, early care and education so um, you know, the percent of parents that, that read to their kids every day, uh, access to Head Start, um, child care subsidies, um, uh, also early interventions, um, right, like assessing kids to see if there's any, you know, developmental delays, um, whether, and then whether they actually receive services to overcome those delays, all those sorts of things. So talk to us about the, the early learning domain. Yeah, so the one thing that's been interesting about this is the um, just how hard it is to compare state by state data. So the yeah. their yearbook is you know we have to compare apples to apples so that we're making sure this is making right. sense across. And there is not enough really good data on the quality of childcare, especially for infants and toddlers, um, mm-hmm. uh, across the country. But there are some really interesting domains that we are able to look at. So one um, you talked about with developmental screening. So this is you know making sure that a child is um, assessed to make sure that they're they're developing on the right trajectory, and if not, they get the support they need. Um, But you don't know if they're not progressing along the trajectory if you're not not screening them, right? So so we know that less than a third receive developmental screening um, with, again, fewer babies and families with low income receiving those screenings. And I talked about early head start, so only a handful of babies, um, less than 10%, so a mere 7%, of babies who are eligible for early head start have access to that and we know that is uh, that is really the kind of the the gold standard when it comes to young children uh, care Mm -hmm. for early the earliest years another few interesting things that are really of a particular note is around the lack of families reading to their children and this is Mm -hmm. something that we know reading or singing or engaging so it could be um, even if you have low literacy Talking to your child, telling family stories, that level of engagement is so important for their, for their development. And we see that um, overall we are not emphasizing that. Um, yeah. Only 38% of babies are read to every day. Um, so there, there are a lot of things that we could be focusing on to, to improve that. And then again, you, know, we, you and I could talk for hours about the child care crisis that we're in the midst of. And so we're, we are worried that between 40 to 50% of child care programs across this country will close as a result yeah, of right. the pandemic. And so, you know, that is going to have a, a incredible and outsized effect on positive early learning experiences for millions of children across the country. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know singing to your kids was a, 
I didn't know that was a thing. My kids always yell at me when I'm singing. Dad, it's terrible. I'm going to tell them this is for your own good. The research, yeah, tell the them research to, shows look at the, it. Look at the yearbook. <laughs> I'll um, tell them. Even yeah. if you're off key, it's still good. All right, good. I'll, I'll, I'll let them know that. But no, I mean, to the more serious point around just the, the COVID impact on the, on the child care sector, I mean, it is... It, it it could decimate this entire this entire sector that that is so uh, is so needed. Um, it just has a, it it's almost an existential threat to the sector, is it not? It is. I mean, it absolutely is. We know that um, there are vast childcare deserts. There were vast childcare deserts before yeah. COVID, where you know places where community families there were not enough childcare providers or settings to meet the need of the children in those communities. And now we're talking about, as you said, the decimation of this of this um, industry. And I don't know what people think the economy is going to look like, and how people are going to get back to work if we don't have childcare. It is. Uh, it, it, yeah, it doesn't work. I mean, it, it just—it's so fundamental. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, yeah, and and you know, so there's there's a way to do both: to do high quality care, so children are getting what they need, and also yeah. making sure it's affordable and accessible for parents, and it's a place where they feel good leaving their children. You know, you and I know this. Right. This is yeah. Fundamental to our ability to work. Yeah. Okay. Let's do um, let's do the third domain, which is strong families. Um, and here, there's uh, several things that you look at. Um, you talked about paid leave earlier, um, right? Like. Things like, um, does the state require employers to provide sick leave um, that, uh, that cover child care, uh, paid family leave programs, uh, home visitation, um, whether like families who could benefit from home visitation programs, are they getting it? Um, child welfare, uh, so maltreatment rates, uh, adverse experiences, things like that. Um, and then basic needs supports, uh, whether ne- uh, needy families are receiving uh, benefits. And here we get to some of the housing measures. Um, so I want to, you know, dig more into the housing measures, but just wanted to ask quickly, you know, are, th- are there any other uh, things that you'd broadly sort of say about the strong families domain? And then knowing that we'll, we'll dig into housing in a minute. Yeah, this is one that I'm, we at Zero to Three have been, um, have always had. Like, it's important to not just mm-hmm. have positive early learning experiences, but to make sure you have strong families intact. And so I'm, I'm right. really happy that more of our colleagues are really uh, focusing on this. But what we've seen um, is not great, right? So we know that only t- about 2% of babies who could benefit from home visiting or who are eligible for those mm-hmm. services are receiving them across the country, 2%. Um, yeah. We know that only nine states offer paid leave. Um, and I think that is going to be, you know, one of the policies to watch over the next couple of months. Right. Um, yeah. I'm hoping that there will be a huge, huge um, groundswell of support for that. And yeah. um, we, we also know we talk about um, family resilience. So whether or not a family feels that they have what they need to weather adversity, to weather financial crises, health mm-hmm. crises, um, and families with low income are significantly less likely to say that their family is resilient compared to higher income families. So 79% said they're resilient compared to 89%. And then um, we also know you mentioned adverse experiences. Infants and toddlers and families with low incomes are four times as likely as those in families with higher incomes to have two or more adverse childhood experiences. So mm-hmm. these are, you know, these are things that everybody should, should care about and, and be paying attention to. So let's let's go into the housing measures yeah. now, and this this falls into the the strong families domain. And uh, there's a few housing measures that that you look at. One is housing instability, right? The the percent of babies and toddlers that have moved uh, three or more times since birth, 
um, which of course is what happens when the rent is too high, um, mm-hmm. the percent of infants and toddlers that live in crowded housing, and the percent living in unsafe neighborhoods as reported by their parents. So clearly housing, um, you know, it makes a sizable presence in, in, the, in the State of Babies yearbook. Um, so talk to us about the, the housing indicators. Yeah, this is one, um, you know, I'm so happy to be talking to you about this. You know, we just, babies need a place to call home. Yeah. Um, it's, it's beyond an, an, an issue of infrastructure. It's at the heart of healthy early development. And as we've talked about already, we know that they need this sense of stability and security to thrive. Uh, but there are some pretty um, clear indicators that we are not doing that. One, the one that I think is the most startling is that Babies are the age group most likely to be homeless um, as, you know, across the country that just think about that um, and and what that means for young children's development, given all that we've said. And so how can we expect to have a strong nation in the future if our youngest children face one of the biggest threats? Um, And then, you know, we think about the the immediate and long-term effects of housing instability, homelessness, overcrowded housing. And we've already talked a little bit about that. Um, but I want to give you some statistics. So mm-hmm. we know from the 2020 yearbook nationally, 15.5% of babies live in crowded housing, um, which is really an alarming finding that continues from the previous year. So this hasn't gotten any better. Yeah. Uh, even more alarming are the disparities, again, that we can now see because we've disaggregated by, by race um, and ethnicity. And Latinx families are more than three times as likely, and black babies and um, children who have other race are twice as likely to live in crowded housing than white babies. Um, so, you know, you think about that and then you think about the crisis that we have, the coalition has been working on, you have been working yeah. on so intensely that we, uh, we assume that those numbers are just going to look a lot worse um, this coming year. Yeah, that's certainly our sense. Yeah. 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 And then in, you know, in homes where families are crowded, parents, um, are inevitably less responsive to their infants and toddlers. This is not because they don't love their kids. In fact, they are showing that they love their children by doing everything they can to get a roof over their heads, right? But this is a stressed out environment when you have so many people um, trying to negotiate scarce resources. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then we also know this is also associated with children's health problems, including respiratory conditions, injuries, and infectious diseases and with young children's food insecurity. So you see this, the intersection of all of these, um, which we can talk about in greater detail later. But, and then there's, the, what's interesting though, is there's a wide variation among states. So uh, there are states w- ranging from 5.6% in, in West Virginia um, with crowded housing to 28.4% in California. Wow. So, and, and in California, two in five Latinx infants live in crowded housing, so 40% of Latinx families. Um, that's my yeah. home state, so it's one that we pay attention to. And then yeah. we talked about you know, frequent moving and housing instability, and just to give you another sense, so nearly 3% or fewer babies um, experience uh, in housing instability, but there's a, a, a great range. Again, um, you have 9% of infants in New Mexico experiencing this. So. This is all, this is just not good news and why this, this work is so important. Yeah. And, um, you know, some of the, uh, a lot of our, our listeners are, are housing advocates and so they know this, but but some are, are maybe not in the, in the housing space. And, and it's just, I just want to be clear that there's, 
it, it's high rents that that drive a lot of this, right? That that people are are forced to move in with relatives or friends because they can't afford the rent on their own. Um, so that forces doubling up. Um, people experience housing instability. They're they're moving. They're bouncing around because of affordability challenges or in that you know uh, evictions, uh, things like that. So the 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 high unaffordable rents drive a lot of this a lot of this instability. Um, and then there's uh, the the other one was just the the unsafe uh, neighborhoods as well. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So we know that um, you know the neighborhoods themselves, um, yeah. because you know are are critical. How comfortable families are in their surroundings affects their overall stress. So if you have a family who's worried about violence outside of their home, or worried about police brutality in their in their communities, they yeah. are bringing that stress into the home and they're bringing that and their children are picking up on it. Um, we know slightly less than 6% of parents with babies report living in neighborhoods that they feel are unsafe. This represents a drop. It was a slight drop from last year. But here again, we see disparities pop up. So right. more than twice as many low-income parents um, report their neighborhood is unsafe than parents in um, than parents above low income. So it's about 8.4% mm -hmm. if you are low income compared to 4% if you are have higher incomes. And there's, mm -hmm. again, wide variation. So you have um, less than 1% of low income parents or parents you know, um, with low incomes in Rhode Island report feeling unsafe in their neighborhoods. But an astonishing 25% of parents with young children uh, with low incomes report um, feeling unsafe in Nevada. Huge. Wow. One in four. I mean, just think about wow. that and, and what that does in terms of stress. And um, this is, I mean, this is self-reported. These are, yeah, that's yep. wild. That's wild. Yep. Yeah. So, I, I'm yeah, not going to, so, this, if you wanted, you know, an uplifting conversation, <laughs> I was not there <laughs> to go to today. <laughs> no, we but there's to, work to do. We can, yeah. you know, yeah. So, yeah. Well, well, we'll try to end on a happy note. Put the Good. put a pin in that. We'll, we'll end on a happy note. Um, so all of these measures, I mean, they, they interact with each other, right? So, so I mean, even if you look at a, at a housing indicator, for instance, um, we know through research that you know a lack of a stable home creates a greater risk of food insecurity, right? The rent eats first in a lot of cases, and so there you go. Where where housing impacts another another indicator in another domain that you measure, and and then food insecurity means difficulty maintaining a healthy weight. Um, and children who experience homelessness are more likely to suffer developmental delays, which is, in a, you know, so that the stress of moving multiple times, it's, it leads to behavioral problems. So, I mean, for, for clarity's sake, obviously the report categorizes everything in, into different domains so that it's, so that's clear. Um, but I think it's important to point out also too, that these, all of these indicators are, are interacting and they're spilling over and it's, you could call it a, the domino effect, snowball effect, whatever you want to call it. But um, I think it, 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 it shows that, you know, for us to really help babies reach their full potential, we need solutions on a variety of fronts uh, concurrently. Is that a fair way to, to say it? Absolutely. Yeah, okay. absolutely. And, you know, we know that family economic status or um, is a huge, plays a huge determining factor in children's experiences. Um, yeah. And so when too many families lack access to social and economic resources, um, they're going to continue to face these persistent hardships. And right now we are seeing unprecedented levels of mental stress and economic distress in families. And so you think about um, 
families who are already reporting these hardships, right, the ones we just talked about. Just I, I, I cannot overstate how mind-blowing this, these, these figures are, are now yeah, in the midst, of, amidst yeah. of this pandemic. Um, when we see, we are seeing shortages in diaper banks across the country, right? There are high levels of food insecurity with more than 6 million people enrolling in SNAP in the first three months of the pandemic alone. Um, and those types of uncertain conditions can create toxic, unrelenting stress that undermines the developing brain. I mean, think about what they do to you as an adult. My, height, my heart is racing just thinking about that yeah. um, for their families living in it. And then think about what that does to young children. And so this is why we've been saying that this pandemic may be indelibly imprinted in the brains and bodies of our youngest children. And it could get worse, right? That's, yeah. that's the scary part. Um, before COVID, we know that a growing number of families with young children um, could not afford adequate housing despite working multiple jobs um, yeah. they, because of the high rents that you, you, know, that you mentioned. Um, and now as a supplemental insurance, uh, our, our unemployment insurance has ended, federal eviction moratoriums have expired and children are heading back to school, families are left with little or completely without federal support to brace them through this economic storm. So. Um, these, you know, you're right, these, these are all interconnected, and that's why this is going to take this broad-based coalition to really rethink what, everything that we've done uh, in the past um, and really take heed of the things that people have been saying we've been needing to do all along. Yeah, it just speaks to how important it is for for Congress to act on this. And here we're we're talking. It's it's August twenty fourth, and and Congress still has not enacted a a second relief package. That um, largely the the provisions and the resources of the CARES Act from March are, you know, uh, dried up or drying up, and um, Congress can't seem to uh, come to an agreement on on a relief package going forward. So um, I just, th- you know, the, the risks of inaction here are just so profound. And as you said, they're impossible to overstate. And yet we don't see a lot of, um, we don't see a lot of positive developments in, in Congress right now. Um, and I think that's just, you know, speaks to how important it is for, for us to, to continue the work that we're doing and to keep hammering this, this home. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the, the solutions now in terms of, um, at least in terms of the, the federal um, solutions. Um, so all of this, you know, intersectionality, I mean, this is, uh, you know, I presume why uh, Zero to Three joined the, the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign. Um, and you've, you've been on our, our roundtable from the get-go and, and always been a, a strong ally in everything that we've done. And, and um, you all have endorsed uh, many of the, the pieces of housing legislation uh, that we've worked on. And even, even before the pandemic, there was the Eviction Crisis Act, there was the Opportunity Vouchers Act, and that was in December before the pandemic that you all uh, endorsed that, that the campaign worked very heavily on. And then even more recently, um, you all have been strong endorsers of of our uh, top priorities, uh, top housing priorities for the next uh, relief package, and, and that includes, you know, a hundred billion for emergency rental assistance, um, a, a uniform national uh, eviction moratorium, and expanded funding to assist people that are that are already experiencing homelessness during the pandemic. So, I guess the question is, even though you know zero to three isn't, um, you know, you're not a bread and butter housing policy organization. You've you've endorsed this legislation because you recognize that that your own goal, right, your own organizational goal of, of healthy, prepared babies and toddlers, requires these these types of housing policies at, at the federal level. So, just uh, wanted to talk a little bit about um, 
you know, how, how you all think about this in terms of actual specific housing policy. Yeah, I mean, I remember talking to you early on and yeah. your strategy of, of making sure that this is not just an issue that Congress, that policymakers aren't just hearing from, you know, your typical housing advocates, that there is something yeah. in this for all of us. And, you know, there's, I can't think of anything um, that is more foundational, excuse the pun, to, yeah. to young children's uh, well-being than a place to call home, a safe place that um, they can, parents can rely on to sing to their children at night, to read to their children at night, to provide healthy meals for them um, and places where they can learn. So, uh, you know, absolutely, we are 100% behind this and so proud to be part of this work. Um, you know, in terms of housing assistance programs such as housing vouchers, public housing, and the National Housing Trust Fund, um, all these reduce the likelihood that families live in overcrowded housing, um, experience yeah. homelessness, or, or move frequently. Uh, again, you know, we know that only about one in four households with children who likely qualify for rental assistance will actually receive aid due to chronic underfunding. Um, and so for us, it's important that you know, as you and I spoke about years ago, that we need Congress to hear from the baby perspective. So yeah. that they can make that, we need to make that connection for them between these policies and what they do for brain development. Because as we we're saying earlier, it's not just about quality childcare, which is important. It's not just about early Head Start. It's actually about these other fundamental pieces of, of well-being that will, um, also mitigate the need for early interventions later on, that those more costly um, programs later on. So that housing piece is, is so fundamental to that. And so, you know, increasing funding for emergency rental assistance by $100 billion and extending the federal eviction moratorium to cover more households for a longer period of time, at least 12 months, is needed for the yeah. overall recovery of our nation. Yeah, now more than ever, <laughs> Congress yeah. needs, to, needs to hear from all of us. And it's just... You know, it's it's unacceptable that that we don't have a, a relief package yet to to ensure um, the safety and security that so many people need right now. Um, so, we'll, but we'll obviously keep keep pushing on it. Um, Want to be respectful of your time. I know we're um, we're we're getting toward the end here, but wanted to ask you quickly about: Are there any uh, best practices that that you would highlight um, from anywhere around the country? Are there you know? Obviously, we talked about the importance of federal resources. Are there any states or localities um, that that you think are doing this work particularly well? And obviously, I don't, you know, I don't know that there's one state that knocks it out of the park in every single way. But just wanted to kind of get your sense of who's doing well in in, in certain areas, or or what types of best practices seem to be um, in place right now and working. Yeah, and I and I'm so glad that you're asking about this in terms of this, you know, a broad based, uh, broad range of supports. We. Our trouble at zero to three is focusing on one thing because we know there's yeah, no right. single service. You know, we, we, we work for the age group and we know that there's yeah. no single service that's going to really address this. But I do think, um, you know, I want to emphasize the importance of housing vouchers that enable families to move to a neighborhood where they and their families will feel safer and have more opportunities to flourish. That does not mm -hmm. mean we avoid, you know, we, we kind of have these specialized um, communities and we leave families uh, in the lurch if they can't get a voucher. We really need to be right. doing this broad-based um, approach um, so that we don't have any family worrying about the security or the safety of their neighborhoods. Um, but the research is clear that children benefit in ways that reverberate throughout their lives when they have um, access to these affordable options. 
Um, and then we also think about, you know, where families are, are in housing that itself is subsidized, co-locating services is helpful. So mm -hmm. some places, and, and Maryland comes to mind for us, um, some places have placed family resource and support programs in um, government-funded, government-supported housing to provide a range of support. So it's really the safety net is right there um, in place for families. And child care is another service that comes to mind that we want to make sure is, you know, we don't have these child care deserts that I, that I mentioned. And then finally, I really want to stress and we don't talk about a lot, and that is making the connection between housing and child welfare. Um, mm -hmm. We know that housing is a huge issue in the child welfare system and where a third of children in foster care are babies and toddlers. Babies are, again, more likely to show up in foster care or in child, in child welfare um, than any other group. So we're, we're disproportionately represented in uh, homelessness and in child welfare. And so helping families stabilize their housing situation can be a key to reunifying them. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, transitional housing programs can also help them get their children back as well as support them in finding a job and generally put their lives back together um, for themselves and for their, the well-being of their young children. So uh, last, last two questions. One is today. It's August 24th. We'll probably put this podcast out in the next couple of days. So right now, um, mm -hmm. what would you tell advocates to, to be doing to, to advance solutions? What can they do right now? call Congress, let them know <laughs> this is not okay. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think about this, do we want to have, what is it going to take, right? I mean, so we yeah. need to call Congress, but are we going to get to a place where we have mass evictions, we have massive homelessness, and is that going to change Congress's mind? I, I mean, it really just, um, it, it's, it's hard to imagine what it's going to take to get them to act. But so, Light a fire, keep that fire going, call your friends, have them um, do the same, register to vote, you know, all of these things, your voice matters. Um, from zero to three's perspective, you know, really, we need you to show up for babies, um, to mm -hmm. take the science and, and use it. Um, we have an amazing um, campaign. Uh, initiative called the Think Babies campaign or Think Babies initiative. It's, and you can go to yeah. www.thinkbabies.org where you can sign up and um, get access to all of our advocacy and toolkits and things like that. And then you really should take a look at our State of Babies yearbook, as you were saying earlier. Um, this is an amazing tool and resource that we want people to use to not only inform themselves, but also to take to their members of Congress um, to demand change. So those those are my two off the top of my head. Right, those are those are two very good ones. So we, we definitely need to keep the pressure, keep the pressure on. Um, and I think, yeah, we could do a whole other podcast of what is it going to take. I mean, you know, it's just in, in this particular moment, it, it, the 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 idea that Congress has not acted yet. Um, on a second relief package is unthinkable. If you would have told me, you know, if we were in early July, um, and we, we, we thought that the second relief package was going to be, you know, coming down, you know, going to be negotiated sometime, sometime in July. If you would have told me in, you know, August 24th, that there would be nothing. I, 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 I would have been surprised with that. And, you know, I, I we, we study this stuff all day long and we know that there's, we know that there's dysfunctions. Um, but, but the fact that it's August 24th and we don't have uh, a relief package, um, when, when the data is just smacking us in the face about the seriousness of this moment, it's, 
yeah, we could spend a whole other whole other episode on on that conversation and in, in terms of what is it going to take. But um, it goes without saying that this is it's really important for us to keep the pressure on here. You know, when we have um, health advisories saying now encouraging families who are in um, multiple generation families, and we know a lot of multiple generation families are are there by choice, but we also know that there mm-hmm. are families who are doing that because they have no other choice, right? No other options, yeah. and we're asking them to wear their masks inside their home because yeah. of the risk of COVID is so great. We have, not, we have not gotten a handle on a public health crisis, right? Yeah. The, the very fundamental piece, like just taking care of this crisis, and then the economic piece, which is just going to exacerbate the, the actual the public health piece. It, it is just, I, I, um, it is absolutely shameful that we are in the place that we are in. It's just shameful. There's, yeah. there's no excuse for it. Yeah. Real quick, um, where can folks go to learn more about the work of Zero to Three? Yes, please go to zero2three.org where you can learn more. You can go to thinkbabies.org um, and where you can sign up for our advocacy and really learn how your voice uh, can be heard so you can be a big voice, big voice for babies and little kids. Uh, and you can go to the State of Babies dot um, org to learn more about our that yearbook that we've been talking about and you can follow us mm-hmm. on twitter you can follow um, me on twitter um, you can you know obviously go to the operation uh, uh, opportunity starts at home web page as well where the amazing work that you all are doing is underway yeah we follow you on twitter what's what's the twitter handle for you oh uh at- <laughs> if you know it <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> you um- must know it come on it's 2020 <laughs> At Myra Jones Taylor, so M Y R A J O N E S T A Y L O R, and then of course uh, at zero to three. Yes, 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 and we we follow both accounts from the from the campaign. Um, all right, well that's it, um, Myra. This this has been great. Uh, love talking to you. There's so much more we we could talk about, um, but this was this was really insightful. I think our our audience will really benefit from listening to this. Um, and again, would really encourage our, our listeners to, to check out the work of Zero to Three. It's an outstanding organization with, with some outstanding folks um, at the helm. So again, thanks, Meyer. I appreciate it. Mike, thank you so much. Thank you for everything you're doing. It's really important. All right. Thanks. Okay. Take care now.